Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Killer, a true crime podcast. We're glad you're here with us. Thank you for taking the time. I'm your host, David, and with me is the man, the myth, the legend, the only person I know who enjoys drinking Natty Light, Craig. What's going on, man? Hey, good morning. How are you? Hey, not too bad. Um, So this is episode number one of Killer. Yeah. Now, we've done some other stuff on the side um, in the past, which... Uh, was pretty fun, but this is definitely a more focused and organized podcast. Let's go around. Yeah, I'm really so really looking forward to this new experience. Yeah, I am too. Um, it's going to be pretty exciting. So uh, Craig and I have done a lot of stuff together and um, previously worked together. And uh, so we ended up doing another podcast uh, completely unrelated to anything true crime and then um, I guess my passion for true crime kind of bled into us starting a new podcast that is that is the focus of true crime so here we are um, you know I I really like uh, love these stories and I, I get really into this stuff and you know it just gives me an excuse to really dive into a lot more cases and and study this stuff and talk about it so I don't know about you, but I think I drugged you along for the ride. Yeah, I wouldn't say you drugged me along for the ride. I, I've i had um, a fascination with this stuff for quite a while, too. I haven't listened to a lot of the, the true, tri- true crime podcasts up until here recently, but I, I've listened to some, and yeah, there's pretty fascinating stuff, but I've read up on some of these guys in the past. Just It, it, it seems like once you start unwinding the narrative behind some of these behind some of these crimes and behind some of the people that have done some of these heinous things it it just draws you in so i'm looking forward to this for sure that's where i am yeah it's fascinating like you get into some of this stuff and just you can't put it down and it's more like it's so opposite of of me in my personality that when you get into it you start just kind of like it's it's fascinating for me to put myself into these situations and, and try and put myself in the mind of these people who do these things. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, this week we are going to cover the case of Krista Harrison. And for our first case, I chose something that's a little more local to me, but uh, Craig and I are both based out of Ohio. Um, we are in opposite corners of the state. I would say. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> it feels like it yeah. anyhow. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're going to go ahead and cover the case of, of Krista Harrison and um, and Tina Harmon, as well as their killer, Robert Buell. And we'll get started on that here shortly. All right. I say let's get into it. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. He was asked if he had any final words. His response? Yes, I do. I had invited the governor to be here today, and Mrs. Taft too. He obviously didn't come. Governor, if you can't bring your wife to your workplace, you are obviously ashamed of what you do. If you're ashamed of what you do, you shouldn't be doing it. Jerry and Shirley, I didn't kill your daughter. The prosecutor knows that. And they left the real killer out there on the streets to kill again and again. So that some good may come of this, I ask that you continue to pursue this to the end. Do not let the prosecutor continue to spin this out of focus and force them to find who really killed your daughter. That's all I have to say. These were the last words spoken by Robert Anthony Buell on September 24, 2002, 
as he sat strapped to a gurney, staring at the ceiling, avoiding eye contact with anyone and preparing to be put to death by lethal injection. Buell's last words were directed to the family members representing their lost loved one, Krista Lee Harrison. So, right there you have uh, Buell uh, obviously being executed for some crimes that we'll get into here shortly. And and those are the last words that he speaks um, as he's preparing to be uh, lethally injected. And this wouldn't be the first time that he was almost ready to die. I believe it was in 1996 he was getting ready to be um, executed, but they uh, paused that for a brief period of time and then ended up moving it to 2002. Um, so with that, we'll get into kind of the timeline of the events that have happened and some of the victims and the story that goes around this. Um, so who was Robert Anthony Buell? Uh, he was a, a city planner for uh, Summit County and not a whole lot of information is out there on him. So I found that part of this equation kind of fascinating when doing the research. You can find a lot about the victims, you find a little bit about their families, but you can't find a whole lot about Robert Buell. And I thought that was kind of interesting because what this man ends up doing is pretty sadistic and disgusting. And so the fact that it's so there's so little information about it kind of astonished me. But I think a lot of that has to do with the location of the crimes. Right. What do you think about that? No, I definitely think it's the location of the crimes. And as we dive a little bit deeper into this, um, the location of the crimes... um, there there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area in this case actually as i read through all the notes and things like that i mean as we get further down this and after we discuss the uh the victims more in depth you you, you see there's a lot of different variables here especially as far as suspects as to who could have possibly performed some of these heinous crimes uh, reading through the notes we know that robert buell was a sick dude you know, just based on yeah. some of the things that we know for a fact that he did. But then when you when you dive a little bit deeper and start putting some of these pieces together and there's some outside theories on what actually happened as well, it, it's there's a lot of moving pieces here. Yeah, definitely. So let's dig in. So in July, um, July 17th, 1982 in Marshallville, Ohio, a quaint town in Wayne County, Located about an hour's drive south of Cleveland, Krista Lee Harrison was about 100 yards from her home across the street at Marshallville Park. She was there with a friend picking up aluminum cans. Her friend turned around for a moment and looked up and noticed Krista was being forced into a van by a man in his mid-20s to mid-30s, and the friend would describe the vehicle as a dark brown van with windows that were bubbled out or rounded. So basically you have one of those, like, (laughs) what everyone kind of jokes about, these giant pedophile vans, except this case it was like a rusty, ugly brown color. Um, and so the friend sees this happen, but that's all he sees. So he sees like this dude just, uh, shove this person into the van and, and that's it. And so, um, from there, that was all that, you know, any of the police had anything to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the community organizes a search for, her, and they didn't come up with anything. And they thought initially that this might be like one of those, uh, ransom situations. So back during this time period in, in, you know, like the late seventies and through the eighties, um, there was a, a common occurrence or common belief that, you know, children or people would be abducted and then held for ransom. Mm-hmm. And then the person holding them would, you know, reach out to the family. So what the police do here is they set up a separate line, uh, phone line for the family to use, and they monitor their main one so they could record or trace any calls coming in, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, you know, you don't, it's not something you really think about today anymore with cell phones. Basically home phones are worthless at this point. I, I don't think I know anybody with a home phone anymore. Yeah. So, um, you know, just thinking about that for a minute, the police were, you know, trying to trace these phone calls coming into the family's home, suspecting a ransom was coming. Uh, six days later on July 23rd, the body of Krista was discovered in a field in Holmes County. Her remains uh, were in an advanced stage of decomposition with a large plastic bag wrapped around her legs. Due to her condition, Harrison's father had to identify her as her body was in rough shape. Some of the items located at the scene were a Budweiser towel, the plastic bag on her body, a bloody cardboard box, a wad of Krista's hair, gloves, a plaid shirt, and jeans. So here you have the crime scene. You've got this body that someone uh, discovers, right? And then 
laying right next to it is just all this evidence, which I found really sloppy and bizarre mm -hmm. for someone to <laughs> commit a murder and dump a body, and then you leave all of these things behind. Yeah, definitely. I, it, it makes you wonder sometimes these guys do these heinous things, and you know we don't know for sure if this was his first victim or not. Usually, I mean, historically from some of the other cases that I've read, it and some of the uh, other individuals that we've actually talked about on our other show, the these these things escalate. They start small, they keep building up. You know, you these guys or whoever the potential um, person is, they start with something like breaking and entering. They their adrenaline gets pumped up. They go a little further, a little further. I, I don't know if this is a case of just being sloppy or this person is actually like calling the bluff of the detectives in the police department that's actually going to work on this case and say, hey, here's some clues. Come find me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had, you know, notorious serial killers, you know, well before this time. And, mm -hmm. you know, they would taunt the police regularly. So it was, you know, nothing out of the ordinary to have a killer taunt police. But in this case, they don't have any idea about anything with this girl. They They don't know who killed her, if she's part of a series of murders, if she's just a lone victim. Um, you know, r right now at this point, all they have to go on is that description of the van and then the evidence that they just collected at the scene. So as the months kind of go, go by, there's nothing that really happens in the investigation. Um, you know, they analyze the materials that they collected at the crime scene um, as well as some things found at the autopsy. And the one thing that the crime lab does notice as they're doing their investigation is that there's these really unique uh, carpet fibers on the body of Krista, and they were like a ugly brown-orange nutmeg color, and they had this unique trilobal shape to them. And they started also working on tracing the origins of this plastic wrap that was wrapped around her feet because... It looked like it was very uniquely manufactured. It wasn't just like a standard plastic sheet. It had like a very specific pattern in it. Mm -hmm. And so the investigators were intrigued by that. And they start kind of looking at it like, hmm, I wonder what this what this plastic wrap is from. And they see if they can figure out, you know, kind of reverse engineer and do some good old-fashioned police work here. Right. And go back and figure out where it came from to see if they can, if it's something that's narrow enough that they can use it to figure out who had this plastic or why. So um, the investigators found the plastic wrap was manufactured by a company in Pioneer, Ohio, and it was used to wrap black car seats that were sold by Sears. And the box that was found with Harrison's uh, blood on it was also used to ship the seats. So here you have, you know, the packaging for these, these car seats. And by car seats, we're talking about actual seats that go into a car, not like a child's car seat. So these are replacement seats for a van. Mm -hmm. which is kind of lining up with the fact that there's a van at the scene of the abduction. Um, so, so dots are kind of starting to get connected here, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. And so the other thing to note was they were able to narrow down 23 people in the state of Ohio that purchased these seats. And they interviewed all 23 people. And at this point, it's not really known, at least based on the things that I researched, if uh, Buell was a suspect. However, I read uh, some reports later that said he was interviewed early on. So I would assume he was actually interviewed here. However, and uh, a lot of the research I came across, they didn't specifically say that they, they interviewed him uh, because they said nobody, none of the 23 had a van. Right. Which I thought was interesting. And can you imagine the amount of work it took to identify this 23 people in the early eighties. It's, it's not like it is today where everything is stored on your computer in a database somewhere. They actually had to go out and do the legwork. And I, I don't know. I know you're a lot younger than I am and I don't even know if you remember these things, but even if you used a credit card back in a day to buy stuff, they used that brick where they cocoon back and forth to get the impression <laughs> yeah, of the they card. Had those manual receipts, right? Yeah. I, you had to, um, you had to actually keep the paper trail manually. Yeah. Like it wasn't spit out of that automated, you know, receipt generator. It was 
like you had to like swipe that uh, ink across the top and stamp in all the information from your credit card onto the receipt itself. Exactly. And then, you know, store those as separate copies. But not only that, there's a lot more cash exchange back then too. Right. So I don't even, I can't imagine the amount of work that went into just finding these 23 people to interview that they know bought these seats. It's crazy. I don't know. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, think about like, tracking like where would you even begin to track back a box in plastic those things are so common you know like where where do you even start with that so the fact that these guys were able to even pull those things out of the crime scene analyze them and then actually like come up with something was i mean that's that drew me into this case like big time because you know obviously this case ends up being very local to me and where i'm from and um you know later when when they find Buell, he he lives in Clinton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And Clinton is a really tiny town. I mean, really tiny town. It, it's actually, I think it might even still be a village. It's not, there's nobody there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to elementary school there. I didn't live in that village for long. Um, I actually lived in the neighboring one, but that's where I went to elementary school when I was a child. So that's what drew me into into this uh into this case because it's just it's so fascinating to me that this happened so locally to me however it was a little bit before i was born but i never even heard of it Mm -hmm. until recently i just was made aware of this case so i it was crazy so anyway um i digress we'll get back into some of the facts here so in october of 1982 this is where it gets very interesting a woman comes running frantically out of a house and she's bloody. Her head is shaved. Um, she has a handcuff on one of her wrists. And she had escaped from Buell's home. And she had been there. She was captured at gunpoint while she was working at a gas station in Damascus, Ohio. And he brought her back to his place. And he uh, rapes and tortures her. And as part of that, he was using, like... He had electrical wire that he had. I, I'm guessing it was probably like a plug that he had one end plugged into the wall and the other end he had cut off the other side of the plug and was using it to zap her with yeah. it. And he was just torturing this poor woman. You know, he shaves her head. I mean, he basically just makes her probably feel like a piece of, of garbage, you know. Mm-hmm. And and this sick, disgusting person is, is doing this uh, apparently quite regularly now. So um, So the woman... She's she's tied up to the bed. She's uh, handcuffed to it, right? And and he gets ready to go to work. And as I said, he was like a city planner for Summit County. And so he's getting ready to go to work, and he tells her, don't move or I'll kill you. Stay right here. I'll be back shortly. And then he leaves for work. Somehow she managed to slip one of her hands through a handcuff. Mm-hmm. He didn't have it tight enough. But also she said, you know, it hurt like hell, but she wasn't going to die there. Right. So she, you know, she pulls her hand out of that handcuff. Can you imagine just being in that situation? You're sitting there. You've already been just completely tortured out of the blue even. I mean, you're at work. Think about this. Woman is at work, you know, just hours before and all of a sudden, boom, she's in this dude's strange house being tortured. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I can't imagine. And ju- just to have the resolve and the, the fortitude to, to escape and then run to somebody's house. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I'm, it, it definitely broke the case wide open when this happened because they, things started really getting interesting after the, she had ran to the neighbor's house and he was arrested for her abduction and whatever. And, um, the story kind of diverted from these abductions and rapes to kind of the focus on this murder after he had already been arrested, but it it said, and I don't have an actual number, but it said a great number of women came forward. So it's it's hard to say how many people he had done this to before this lady had escaped. But he, and it sounded like he was torturing them, raping them, and then turning them loose. But I'm surprised that you know this had happened repeatedly until they had pinned it on him. You would think somebody in that area, and maybe he's going out of his reach a little bit to find these victims, but it, you know, they really didn't get this tip, the ultimate tip off until she had escaped and ran to the neighbor's house. So, yeah, that's, what's fascinating is, you know, it's the eighties. Right. And so it's not like it is today where you have like, you know, cameras all over the place to, 
to track people. And like, for instance, we're going to talk about, I don't think it's too early to say, we'll talk about probably the, the Molly Tibbetts stuff at some point here in the near future. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, they use the businesses cameras to start tracking cars that were frequently in the locations they suspected she was in. And right. that's, you know, where they start going with that. And, but they don't have that here. You know, it's probably very few businesses that actually do have, you know, any sort of, um, you know, a camera system. And not only that one that it could actually see things from a distance. I mean, you remember like what TVs were like in the eighties yeah. I mean, they were tiny. Yeah. Yeah, all the closed caption stuff back then was black and white, grainy as hell. I don't, I don't know how you could have even drawn anything from that stuff other than you know you get that one still frame in the shot that you know somebody looks up at the camera says you know then you get that that still image. But things have advanced a lot. I mean, there's still you still see things today that are recorded on security cameras and they still look like shit. And you wonder to yourself why they haven't advanced any further than that, but. <laughs> I, I know yeah i i just looked up real quick because you know i don't know why i didn't do that before but um i was just kind of curious in relation to where buell's home is where damascus is and it's about an hour east almost directly east of clinton mm-hmm. so from clinton over to damascus is about 57 minutes according to my maps so um you know he's going obviously out of his way to not be near his home right when this is going on. And I believe Krista's abducted in Wayne County. So even that's pretty close to Clinton where he's at in Wayne County, um, maybe 10, 15 minutes. So it's still relatively close, but it's still not Clinton. Right. And, you know, and this is the eighties. So it was a lot less populated at the time. Wayne County is a, it's a farmland, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you and I worked in Wayne County at one point. There's not a lot going on there. It's just basically flat and farm, and there's nothing else. Yeah. And in the 80s, it was probably even worse than it is now, uh, as far as that's concerned. And Clinton, I think, was much the same way. A lot of farmland, a lot of woods, not a lot of residents. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I've never been directly in Damascus that I can tell you what it looks like there, but I'm assuming it's probably very similar. So you have very similar areas where he's going and prowling and finding people. They're kind of in the middle of the nowhere. Then he takes them and he dumps them somewhere else. So, um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty fascinating. So you kind of alluded to it, but, uh, we'll go through it here. Buell was arrested for the capture of this woman and it was discovered he had a van matching the description of the one that was used to abduct Krista. And once they began investigating further, they were able to determine the carpet fibers from the van matched those of the ones uh, found on the body. And in addition to the fibers, the paint stains found on the jeans that were left near Krista's body uh, was also matched to paint found at his home. So we're starting to, you know, this is really before DNA evidence is a thing Mm -hmm. uh, or reliable thing. And you know, where they can actually use it for more than just kind of a rough guess or a likelihood. Um, you know, pretty much we take DNA now as fact almost, really? you know. Um, when you look at the numbers, it'll be like, this DNA matches like one in a trillion, you know, or whatever. Yeah. They give you some crazy astronomical number. Um, but back then, they connected the dots in different ways. And, you know, through good police work, they are able to start kind of lining things up. So... Here we have Buell. He's captured for this woman escaping. And now they're starting to get suspicious of him and and Krista, right? And they start tying these things together. And here's where it kind of gets more interesting. So the fibers that they found on the body of another girl who was abducted, raped, and killed in 1981 named Tina Harmon, um, she was only 12 years old, and she was abducted October 29th from a convenience store in Lodi, Ohio, I believe. And her body was found five days later, um, on November 4th, 1981 in an oil well or on an oil well, I should say in Bethlehem township in Stark County. And her clothes had dog hair and orange carpet fibers on them. I believe Krista's actually had some dog hair too. I I think I left that out. Mm -hmm. Um, so investigators start matching these things up. Now, the interesting thing with with Tina Harmon's case is that her, she had two people that were suspected to have killed her and they were basically just like local miscreants who, 
you know, police just felt uneasy about, right? They just, they weren't good people. And they convicted them of her crime on circumstantial evidence. However, when they found out about Buell and the carpet fibers, they overturned their conviction and let them go in 1983. Wow. So, yeah, that's that was a crazy here. turn of events. Can you imagine being those two guys, even though they were probably constantly in trouble getting a rap for something like that? Yeah, and that's part of what I love about this story is that you've got these cases that keep like the police aren't stopping and they're not accepting no for an answer. Mm -hmm. Right. And you've convicted these two guys. It's really easy to kind of just sweep them under the rug and let it go and be like, okay, these guys are, they're convicted. We're just going to let them go and move on. But no, they're like, no, they didn't do this. And they let them go. I mean, they were convicted to life in prison, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they're out in a year, you know, and that's pretty, pretty good for them. I suppose. I mean, I don't know if they were good people and went on to do anything crazy, but, you know, I also don't want the justice system <laughs> improperly imprisoning people. No. So, you know, just because you're an a-hole or a low life doesn't mean you need to be in jail. You know, you got to accept that. So I thought that was a pretty interesting twist in this case. And then you have another girl who ends up getting linked to Buell, and her name was Debbie Smith. So Smith was abducted from a fair in Maslin, and her body was later discovered, um, I believe it was on the banks of the Tuscaroras River, and she had, like, blue wax on her body, and the same blue wax was also discovered at Buell's house, but it was kind of common, so they didn't really have anything to go by to make a conviction or anything like that, but they're linking these together, so these three girls are now linked. So you have Krista, Tina and Debbie and also the the woman who escaped from the house mm -hmm. who will remain nameless um you know she was gone so you've got Buell leaving these bodies everywhere and leaving evidence all over them so not smart on his part however i would argue most people who are killing people aren't very smart um so then you end up Buell gets uh, a sentence to 121 years in prison for the kidnap and rape of two women in January of 1984. In April of 1984, he's convicted of aggravated murder and sexual penetration of Krista Harrison. Buell was sentenced to death, which was upheld by a judge on April 11th. So he only gets convicted in Krista's case. They don't convict him in the other two because they don't have enough evidence. Now, in Tina's case, they probably have enough evidence, but they figured why you don't need to try him, you know, for that murder as well. You know, you already got him. Mm -hmm. He's already going to die. And I think that they also hold these things back in case, like, something comes up and they somehow get him out of it later. It's like, okay, well, let's try this one then. <laughs> you know, right. that kind of thing. So uh, he spends the next several years... Uh, in prison, appealing his cases, and they keep getting denied. And then in July of 1996, they move him to what they call the Death House, which is a prison in Lucasville, Ohio, and that's where he'll end up being executed. And so he goes through the appeals process all the way up until September of 2002 when he gets um, gets executed. So that sounds like it's really the entire story but it's not quite the entire story. So we have, you know, Buell goes through, we find him, convict him, he sits in prison for a while, goes through his appeals process. And then we end up, you know, he he's in prison and he keeps claiming he's innocent. Mm -hmm. And this is what's fascinating. So he, he I, I don't know what to believe here and I don't know what your thoughts are, but he, you know, he keeps saying he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Um, you know, and, and he goes through and he researches his case and he comes up with some points and we'll discuss those here in a minute. But, you know, every killer, I feel like says they're innocent. Yeah, they do. Other than some of the ones that are completely off their gourd and just say, yeah, I did it. Kill me. <laughs> there's a few of those out there. <laughs> You're right. There, There's a handful of those guys, but for the most part, you know, Every, there's like a joke, you know, everyone on death row is innocent. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Cause nobody wants to face, you know, 
they don't want to pay they want to they don't want to pay for what they've done in a manner similar to what they've you know are accused of doing or have been sentenced for doing so it the the whole capital punishment thing argument kind of drives me a little crazy because you you see the heinous things that these people do and just how horrific some of these crimes are and and to me getting strapped down on a table and getting an IV shoved in your arm and put to sleep is probably about as humane way to go as possible if they're going to put you down <laughs> yeah i have mixed feelings on it um you know i, I don't want anyone to die mm-hmm. you know uh, you know, of outside of natural causes when, when it happens, you know, like when your time comes, but you know, if you're going, if you have like 100% certainty that this person is killing people, I don't mind if you get what's coming to you or get a little prison justice, you know, no, same here. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, that, that's where it does get, it gets hairy. I mean, there's a lot, a lot to say about the, you know, death penalty in this country and how we execute prisoners and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, a lot of these guys get to live these cushy lives in prison and, um, you know, they, they don't have to suffer a lot of consequences once they're in there, you know, they get three meals a day, they have a place to live, they get to exercise, you know, like, I mean, obviously it's not great. I'd much rather be free, but you know, for killing, for killing people, and then you have your appeals process and then, you know, you've got years and years uh, on, on death row and in prison and stuff it, 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 you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot that goes into that. And, you know, I don't know, I don't have an official stance, but yeah, it's just, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to get too far into that, mm-hmm. but anyhow, it sounds like in this case, he deserves it. So yeah. um, let's talk about Buell pleading his innocence. So I, I thought that was kind of fascinating. I found a few um, resources that kind of talk about, you know, him professing his innocence. And so in June of 2000, so this is what, two years before he's executed or a year and a half. Yeah. He's still adamant that he didn't murder Krista or anyone else. And he claims that the prosecution did not call key witnesses, such as one that um, that could say that they saw a van matching his description driving around while Buell was at work. So, you know, here he's saying, you know, I was at work, and there's still this van being reported driving around that matched the description of the one that I had. So how can you say that it was me for sure? And then his next claim would be that there's several more murders matching the same M.O. that are still ongoing. So meaning the real killer is still on the loose, doing very similar things to what Buell was doing. So this kind of fascinates me, right? You got this guy. He's abducting women. He's torturing them. He's raping them. And it's a stretch now to suddenly think you're not killing them. So, So where are you going with this, dude? So, you know, he he's quoted as saying, um, while discussing the case, uh, you know, he's he's pacing around in, in his in his cell, and then he says he's pointing to some hand drawn maps and and some sworn statements that he's saying, you know, would clear him of the murder, and he says, you know, I do get a little intense when talking about my case. It upsets me. Nah, it pisses me off that the prosecutor knowing full well that I did not commit this murder would take me to trial. A greater sin is, in doing so, he left a killer on the streets to kill again and maybe again and again. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. So this is still, you know, similar to the statements he made when he was executed. Um, you know, he's still professing that somebody else is doing this killing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's interesting. And, and the prosecutor, uh, you know, they refute some of the things that he's saying. And so um, Patricia Milhoff, one of Buell's court-appointed lawyers, so, says, you know, there's no question that he was at work in the morning. 
And the witness who testified at trial said that he saw Buell on the road in the late afternoon when Buell's alibi was weaker. Um, so that's kind of interesting. He's kind of contradicting what he's trying to say there is, you know, hey, you're saying that we're seeing this van driving around, but you're at work. However, the time that the witness is actually saying is late in the afternoon when you could have skipped out or been doing something else. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's, uh, you know, impossible to suspect that he was driving around, not doing his job. You know, he's a city planner. So what's that really mean? Like, what are you doing? Right probably have an excuse to get out and drive around say you're looking to set something up pretend you have a meeting somewhere and go do some nefarious things mm -hmm. and when he tells uh that woman that he abducted and had her chained to his bed i'll be back soon that implies to me that he's not planning to be at work for eight hours in a row right sounds like he has a pretty pretty long leash as far as he can just come and go as he pleases at work and there's not a lot of accountability Exactly. So I would think that, you know, if you're going to claim that you weren't doing it because you were at work, I would say that's pretty weak, in my opinion, um, based on all of the things that we know now, uh, you know, and all the evidence that we have on you. It's like, okay, uh, it doesn't really seem like you were really, uh, you know, tied to your job constantly where you couldn't be doing these things. I mean, if you have time to drive an hour away, abduct somebody, bring them home, torture them for days, you know, yeah. like... Why would I suspect that because you claim you're at work that you actually are? Yeah, So definitely. The other interesting thing is that, uh, you know, Beale states is that um, one of the witnesses' statements that were given to the police was after they were under hypnosis. So that's kind of interesting, you know, like trying to poke holes in it because they say they hypnotize somebody to, to give evidence. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I believe in hypnosis or not. It doesn't sound like something they really do anymore, but, you know, maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah, I was just getting ready to ask that question. Do you even think that that's, like, suitable evidence in a case? Somebody's hypnotized and they they say something under a trance or whatever. I'm, I'm with you. I don't know that I 100% fully buy into the hypnosis thing. Well, they still do like polygraph tests, which are interesting because they're not used in court and they don't really do anything. You know, people call them a lie detector test, but they don't really do that. You know, mm -hmm. it might give you an indication of if somebody's lying, but it doesn't really prove it. There's no, there's no proof. Like, you know, never take a lie detector test is the bottom line because they're never good for you and they can't be used in court. So I would never take one. If I, if I was ever asked, I would never do it. No, they don't do anything to help you. It's only, it only hurts you. So if you pass it, it doesn't matter. Right. And if you quote unquote fail it, it still technically doesn't matter, but then the police get a lot more suspicious of you Yeah. and who do you, and who knows why? Like I'm kind of a nervous person. So like if somebody like, you know, if I go to get in trouble, like all of a sudden my face turns bright red, my heart's racing, I can't catch my breath. You know, if the cops are going to pull me over, I'm not calm and collected. I'm like freaking out. Right. Yeah. I can only imagine what I'd be like in a polygraph situation. Exactly. Like I'd be giving you false positives all over the place. Yeah. If you're a, a naturally anxious person, I don't, that's, it's, it's not a good way to test somebody for truth as they, as they say. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, he's going through and just kind of trying to poke holes in this case, but I, I'm still not really seeing it at this point. Um, and so, so he ends up being executed obviously and, and, and things don't work out for him the way he was open. However, um, in 2010, this is kind of interesting here. So this is where the case gets kind of fascinating and some of these theories come out that I, I think are very interesting to this case. So you have this, there's a local, um, investigative journalist slash crime writer, um, James Renner. And he is looking into some of these cases and he's very, he's specifically looking a lot into this Amy Mahalovic case. Uh, you know, it was another young girl in Ohio who was abducted and found later. And so he's trying to kind of, I think he's, I think what he's doing here is trying to connect the dots between some of these cases. Right. And he's mm -hmm. like, well, you know, could Buell have been responsible for this or, you know, what, whatever. And so he's looking at this Tina Harmon stuff. So that was the second girl that was found.
and he's trying to connect them and see if there's anything interesting here. And so they find that there was DNA evidence that was collected back then, but they couldn't really do anything with it. But now they can, and it's 2010. And so Renner's going back and forth with um, Wayne County and talking to them and saying, hey, you guys should test this DNA because what he's trying to do is rule Buell in or out, you know, and if he's out, then maybe the same person abducted Amy Mahalovic, you know, and, and maybe it wasn't Buell, as he was saying. And so <laughs> Wayne County, this is funny, they, they push back and they're like, no, we don't need to do that. We Buell did it, you know, we're done. Mm-hmm. Wash your hands. See you later. So <laughs> Renner goes, well, how much does it cost to do this? And I think they say it was like $400 to test the DNA. And so he's like, I'll pay for it. And like, no, we can't do that. We can't set that precedent. Yeah. He's like, okay, well, we'll get the community to pay for it or, you know, or her family will pay for mm-hmm. it or whatever. We'll raise the money. And they're like, no, we're not doing that. So he goes to the media and puts the story out there that Wayne County won't test DNA for $400. <laughs> or whatever the dollar amount was. I think it was 400 Yeah. And so he basically shames them into testing it, which I think is hilarious. Like, Wayne County, that's really shitty. You should have tested this. Like, I don't understand why you wouldn't, just to make it definitive at this point, even if you think that's the answer. Since we're going by DNA as fact in almost all cases, mm-hmm. like, why don't you just test this and close the case and be done with it? Yeah. So... Because, and, and the thing was, Wayne County, you know, I say close the case because they had it open, but they said it was closed, but it was really still open. But they're like, yeah, it's closed as far as we're concerned. They're not actively doing anything with it. However, it wasn't really officially closed. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, let's officially close the case. What are you leaving it open for? You've got DNA. Let's test it. So they do. And, and they find that um, there's semen left on, on Tina's clothing and it matches Buell. And so that connects him officially at the end. So no surprise end, but just the whole drama around getting it to the point where they go test it. It's like, what the hell, guys? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. What? In a case like that, you think you would just take every lead possible and just do it. It's not even the $400 at that point. Who cares? It's just if you can close a case and, and put it to rest, it, it's worth a hell of a lot more than $400. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't understand. So the next part of this that's really interesting, so as Renner's kind of going through this stuff, he comes up with some theories based on his investigation of the situation, which I find this to be completely fascinating, and I, I, I think you guys will as well. So Buell says, he writes a book, and it's called The Serial Killer's Apprentice. And so what's that mean? You've got a serial killer, and you've got someone who helps the serial killer. Um, and so in this case, you've got Buell, right and he was convicted and killed of doing these things but what we find out is living with buell at the time was somebody else and his name was ralph ross jr so uh ross is buell's ex-wife's sister's son (laughs) so follow me down the rabbit hole here (laughs) um (laughs) he refers to buell as uncle even though they're not technically related right And so he lived with him in the early 80s, and Ross was frequently in the house alone because Buell was dating an attorney at the time, and he would be at her house all the time and or going out fishing for chicks to abduct an hour away. Who knows? Anyhow, so Ross lived there. Um, And at one point during the trial, you know, Ross testifies that, you know, him and Buell would discuss abducting women, which was kind of strange. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's a little shady, right? Like, you know, I'm not going around discussing abducting women with you, yeah. <laughs> you know, for fun. We, we don't talk about that stuff. Exactly. Unless you're like a complete creep and you're going to do it, you know? So what's fascinating here is Ross also has a van that is very similar to Buell's. And it has... um Actually, I don't know for sure, so this is kind of my mess up, but it might even have been Buell's van that was sold to Ross, and I believe that's the case. So I think Buell sold his old van to Ross and got another one that's very similar to the one that he had. And so uh, so, the, so Ross has this similar van, 
his had a sunroof and bubble windows, which is the description. The bubble windows were part of the description of the original van that abducted Krista. And what was interesting, though, is people had said that Buell had that same van, and then suddenly he switched out his windows to just regular, like, flat windows instead of these ones that bubble out, like, kind of like, you know, the fisheye lens kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, it's a little unclear to me there, like, if if he sold the van or modified, or if Buell modified his existing van or what the situation is. However, Ross has a van or access to a van that is similar to the one that was used in the abduction. The candle wax, they both have access to it. Um, there was an eyewitness, and they say that the guy that kidnapped Krista was not Buell. It, it wasn't him. They're positive. And then, um, again, the van with uh, the bubble windows is Ross's van, not Buell's van. And the carpet fibers are interesting because, you know, there's rolls of that carpet fiber in the house with Ross, and it's in both vans. Mm-hmm. So you so you have a match there. The dog hair. So Buell's dog slept in Ross's van before, yeah, before he sold it to him. So yeah, so so Buell sold Ross this van at some point. Um, and then jeans that were found at the scene, they're definitely Buell's jeans, but Ross had access to them. So he could have borrowed his jeans or wore his jeans. Um, to me, it's hard to tell because I've never seen the picture of them both like standing side by side, but they in their pictures, they look like they're a similar height and similar build. Mm-hmm. So that could be possible. And then... Uh, and the plastic. So uh, they did work together on these seats to put them into uh, Ross's van. And so that was kind of interesting. You know, they worked together with these seats that Buell had bought to put them into Ross's van. Um, They're moving the seats around together and doing all that stuff. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. And then you have a witness that noticed someone dumping the body of Krista but didn't see their face or know that they were actually dumping a body at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, at that time that this witness, who was a credible witness, says that they saw this happen, Buell has a receipt that he shows he was purchasing a dryer at the time. And what gets even more interesting is Ross calls off work that day and then returns the following day with his arm in a sling. And so he suddenly has this injury and there's no record of him at his work getting hurt or anything like that where he would, you know, you could track that he was injured on the job or anything like that. So, um, and once word kind of starts getting out about this stuff, he ends up like just quitting his job and starts working for his mother who, and this kind of interesting as well. She is like a craft maker, you know, like an artist who makes like these crafts and stuff and sells them at fairs. Well, you have the third girl in this equation, Debbie Smith, who disappeared from a Maslin fair. Ross was working for his mother at the time, who makes crafts and sells them at fairs. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of things that tie together there. And the the thing with Ross I found interesting, too, was I, I read a little bit further down in Renner's, um, you know, description of Ross and, and how he tied into this case. Um one thing was i like you said he just quit his job and went kind of tried to go off the radar after some of these accusations started coming out around him and you know the possible connections to all of this but i believe if i read correctly in one of renner's articles um that was out on cleveland scene you put a link out there for it he actually ended up moving out of state i believe it was wheeling west virginia and working as a cable installer so not only was this guy suspected of some like crazy stuff that was tied to Buell, but then turn around and to get a job where he has access to the inside of people's homes, like on multiple homes on a daily basis and to boot the plastic that was used or, or was from those seats that was proven, you know, to tie back to Buell and the purchase of those seats. There was a fingerprint on that plastic, but it did not match Buell's and Ross Jr. refused to give a fingerprint sample to see if it matched. So that's right, yeah. And and what was interesting about that was they destroyed the plastic after the case was closed. So we never went back and tested mm-hmm. it. So I yeah, this there's just a lot of unanswered questions there and as I read the where Ross had ended up, I don't believe he works for the cable company anymore. Something had happened and he was fired from that job too, but you know, 
Well, I think he actually worked for that cable company in Steubenville, Ohio, but there were a bunch of mysterious similar uh, crimes in wheel and uh, was it wheeling? Wheeling, yeah, I think so. Yeah, in in West Virginia, let's just say that and there near his area where he had access to because Steubenville is kind of near the West Virginia right. area, so you know he could have easily went over to West Virginia and started doing this stuff. Uh, you know that people are suspecting that he possibly was involved in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then Render brought this up, and then the cable company fired him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no joke. And it's I, I can't believe that the authorities didn't run out a little bit further with him because the picture that Buell is painting all along was, it, I don't think that he ever denied the fact that he abducted and raped some people, and probably these girls too, but he continually went back to the fact that he was not the one who killed them. But for whatever reason, he just the impression that I get from reading all of this was he knew who killed them, but wouldn't throw that person under the bus, which makes sense because if he's close enough to this Ralph Ross to, you know, essentially feel good about him calling him uncle, you know, there's a pretty close connection there with this guy. And he was, to me, it sounds like he was shielding the guy who actually killed these people. It's very easy to make that connection in yeah, I mean, Buell, Buell says that he t- told his pastor before he was executed some names of people he suspected, mm-hmm. but not to tell anybody. And the pastor's not saying anything. Oh, man, I don't know how I feel about that. If if he was given, like, actual names, he, he's not a lawyer. He's not sworn to secrecy of his client. How could you, how could yeah. you sleep at night if somebody gives you names that was potentially taking don't other you leak that to somebody i yeah i don't understand that whatsoever i mean who knows maybe he did and it was investigated behind the scenes and you know yeah. you know no one said you know like you never know with that stuff yeah if it were me right and i'm like clergy or something and i'm talking to these prisoners and they're telling me these horrible things of course i'm telling law enforcement mm-hmm. somehow maybe i'm going to somebody else you know and like I didn't tell law enforcement, mm-hmm. but so-and-so told law enforcement for me. You know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm not going to hold that stuff down. No. There was another case that I was uh, listening to a podcast about, and I don't remember exactly what the case was. But um, this dude had told uh, his lawyers, you know, where he had bodies at. And, like, the lawyers went there and found them, but then didn't tell anybody. That is messed up. And, and I think they were later sued for it, but they didn't get prosecuted on it or whatever. But yeah, it's like, I mean, I understand that, you know, attorney client privilege, but at some point, like if someone's admitting to like murdering people and telling you where they are, or who they are, like that information should not be subject to yeah. that. Like you should be able to go tell authorities and, you know, that's like one of the, so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I understand like trying to protect people's rights and everything, but dude, you just killed people, admitted to it, or told them where they are, and you're not giving up that information. Like that person's rights are all gone because of you. Yeah, and and back to your, back to the clergy guy who wouldn't share those names with authorities, or supposedly wouldn't tell the authorities. Hey, how could you sleep at night knowing that potentially, let's say he gave them two or three names, how could you sleep at night if one of those two or three people was the actual killer? And was still out there killing people, little kids at that. It's that's right. just insane. And, you know, that's the other that's the other thing that I find fascinating about this case. So Buell abducted, you know, an older woman. Mm-hmm. She's in her twenties, like twenty eight, I think. Uh, you know, but anyway, she's in her twenties, right? Then you've got these other girls who are like in their teens, or not even pre-teens. teens, right? And 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 those they just. You know, the victimology is not quite there to me, like, unless it's just any girl is a Mm free-for-all, you know? It's just strange. So, is there somebody else doing something? I mean, however, they did find Buell's semen on Tina Harmon, but, um, you know, it's just interesting in that regard. Is, Is this something that, like, they just didn't have a type, and they were just, it was a crime of opportunity every time, and it was like, oh, I saw this little girl, or I saw this woman, and I abduct her and do this, do these horrible things. Uh, who knows? But it definitely raises some questions with this Ralph Ross and if he was actually involved. And I kind of feel like he is 
based on the facts presented to me. I don't know about you. Oh, no, I definitely think he's associated somehow to all of these crimes. And the thing that really bothers me, too, was, and you alluded to it earlier, was what was the hesitation on Wayne County's part to process evidence in the case that, you know, put another murder to basically to rest and it, it is that in part due to the fact that you know they don't want to be called out on making a mistake possibly that, that is. possibly mm-hmm. you know yeah possibly that they put mule to death i mean he was already convicted to 121 years he was already going to do life in prison for rape and i think he kind of owned that but you know you you mandated a death sentence on a person that potentially wasn't the actual murderer do they not want that flaw in their investigative procedure to come out and have their name drugged through the mud? I, I think there's a lot more to that, too. Yeah, and that's that's what's fascinating is, you know, you already convicted him on Krista, and you didn't convict him on Tina or Debbie, mm-hmm. right? And so you convict him in Krista's case. Why not process this evidence? Because just because you process it and find if you found it was somebody else for Tina Harmon— that doesn't necessarily mean that he did not do anything with Krista. So you could still save face that way if you want to spin it. Mm-hmm. However, you're right, though. I mean, if you did put him to death and then made the assumption all along that it was Tina Harmon, you look like an ass if it's not him. Right. You look like a complete ass. You've got DNA evidence you could have tested long ago, and it doesn't show up with him. Like, oof, yeah. egg on your face. Big, big time. <laughs> I mean, they did they did have a little bit of egg on their face because it ended up being Buell's DNA, but just... It, uh, they celebrated it like it was a success for them. Right. <laughs> you know, because it, it confirmed what they had been claiming without actually processing that evidence the whole time. Yeah. and But, I mean, you got to think of the family, too. Like, Tina's family's involved in this, and, you know, they want to have every shred of evidence processed and understand for a fact that this is what happened. And even if they suspected it was Buell... Like, you want him to be officially linked, like 100% linked. Right. And, yeah, the carpet fibers, the dog hairs, all of those things, they link them. Um, I believe even to, like, to make sure that the dog hairs match, they exhumed the body of the dog. Yeah, they did. When it was dead. Yeah, they did. And and they tested the hairs. And, and so you've got, like, all of these things going on, and it's just really, you know, I don't understand how as a— Wayne County like could look at Tina Harmon's family in the face and say, we're not going to process your DNA evidence for $400. I mean, if it was like $10,000 or, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, I would understand that because right. Wayne County's tiny, you know, it's not LA, it's not New York, it's not Cleveland for that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have a, a, a big population and a lot of money coming in to do these kinds of things for $400. You could definitely do this. Yeah. I, I don't think that that was. I don't think the four hundred dollars was the problem. I think that their reputation was what they were worried about as far as the investigation Absolutely. went. That's 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 all it boils down to. And um, yeah, with with Tina Harmon's family wanting closure, I, I I can't match up the dates and the times, but I think when Renner was pushing to have this done and basically shaming them and the media. They actually had a small press conference at Tina Harmon's brother's home, and mm-hmm. I, I believe Wayne County investigators <clears throat> like tried to officially close the case a day or two before it happened because I think they wanted to shut the door on it. So, I mean, that's a, that's yeah. another questionable act on their part. Why? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things, like, it's okay to be wrong, mm-hmm. but you have to be able to admit that you're wrong. And, you know... We live in a society that's a little bit different now than it was in 2010, where everyone's out witch hunting, right? And they're looking for reasons to poke holes in things that you're doing and mm-hmm. and to find you at fault for whatever and try to, you know, get you to lose your job or whatever. You know, people aren't looking at the human side of things anymore. Everybody's kind of a robot now through their phone, right. you know? And the human on the other end is is basically just a pawn in the big game. Yep. and. And they don't care, and they'll call for your job in two seconds, right? And so I understand wanting the self-preservation aspect, you know, being local law enforcement. You want to be respected. You want to be trusted and all that. And if something comes out that's incorrect. But you could even go back and say, well, yeah, but back in 1983, we let the two guys that we originally convicted go because we knew that this wasn't right. We made it right. Mm -hmm. You know, we thought it was this. We were wrong. We found out that it wasn't, and we made it right. 
we're going to do the same thing again. You know, if it proves that Buell was not, not the guy, we'll make it right. You know, we'll find the person who did this and we'll bring them to justice. You know, because at the time we went by these things and here's what we came up with. And it just makes logical sense. And I, I would agree. If you look at the evidence that they have, the links to Buell, like perfectly. Yeah. The MO, the evidence, you know, all of that stuff, it, it all lines up. So I don't think any logical person could look at that evidence and go, man, I don't know how you guys got here. You know, it's just a matter of let's cement this now. Let's test that DNA. Let's make sure that Tina's family gets closure. And if not, then we will find out who did this because then we have somebody we left out there. And Buell might be right then. Exactly. But that's the thing. Buell was pleading his innocence so hard that when it came time to test this DNA on Tina Harmon, if they were wrong, Buell looks right. Yeah. Yep. Even though he was implicit in a lot of the stuff and admitted to the rapes and the tortures and the captures, you know, you're now really questioning, did he actually kill people? Right. And I'm not even, I, I would go as far, I mean, this is my personal perspective, the rapes and the abductions of these children and young women, it, to me, even if they executed him, and he wasn't the person who murdered those people in the end, the acts that he committed and were so heinous that as a prosecutor or as law enforcement, I would not still lose any sleep over the fact that he was put to death for what he did because I think it's, no, I think it's still justifiable either. at some level, but yeah, I wouldn't either. I mean, I hate, I hate the idea of playing God and yeah. killing people for doing things, but at the same time, like, you know, you got to put yourself in, in, this is the thing. Like you kind of have to try to empathize with the situation in some way. And so I put myself in this lens. Let's just theoretically say Buell is not found to have DNA on Tina Harmon and somebody else. Okay. So now we're like, okay, shit. Did he actually kill people? Mm-hmm. If you saw Buell pulling your daughter out of that gas station and or and or knew where he took her and found her tortured at his house, would you shoot him? Oh, definitely. I'd probably exactly. So okay, all right. So if he got killed for the death penalty on this yeah. one, I guess I'm okay with it. But you know, that's that's what I go with. You know, like would I have in self defense killed that guy for whatever he was doing at the time? And absolutely, I would have. Yeah. No, it. Not without a doubt, and he. Like you said, he's implicit in these crimes to the point where he could be the abductor. He's the person torturing and raping them. But it sounds to me like, I mean, all indications from the evidence that Renner brought out points to the fact that Ross Jr. likely could have been the person killing them. But Buell was enabling him to do so because he, he may have already abducted the person, raped them, done whatever he want, and, you know, got his rocks off. But then that person is in that situation and, and Ross finishes the job, so to speak. So mm-hmm. he's just as much an accomplice in the whole thing. I think at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Even if he was just the, the body dumper, mm-hmm. like even if the body was already, you know, the person was already killed and then they'd had the body to get rid of. And he was doing that part of it. He's just as guilty. Mm-hmm. You know, he's aware of what's going on. These innocent people are being tortured and killed, and he's not doing anything about it and not reporting it. Shame on you. So, I think um, that sums up our, you know, our feelings and thoughts on the case. And uh, you know, so I, I guess I would say we can uh, put that one back in the filing cabinet, and uh, we'll pull out the next case file uh, next week. So, that being said, that's the case of uh, Robert Anthony Buell. I found that one to be pretty fascinating. Um, I'd say we have a few a few plugs to do here at the end. So uh, if if you enjoy our show, you know, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. So I know most of you will probably listen um, and rate us in iTunes. Um, but don't forget, there's also Spotify. There's Google Podcasts. You know, Stitcher. There's a lot of other options out there. Um, I would like to note and recommend that. Um, if you listen to our show, uh, try to use, if you're on an Apple device, try to use uh, Overcast. It is an alternate uh, podcast platform. And basically, it's all the same shows you can get through um, through iTunes. 
they use that same library to find shows and pull them in. However, what's nice about Overcast is it supports chapters and images. So what that means is when we present cases to you, we will try to put case materials into the show, meaning you can see what chapter we're on in the show. So if we're doing, you know, like in this case, you know, we're talking about the evidence, we're talking about timeline or something, I might put a map in there and you can then see visually where things are in relation to what we're talking about. So I think that's kind of helpful, kind of neat, interactive way to enjoy the show. And so I recommend that. I do know Apple Podcasts will be supporting that in iOS 12, which releases in the fall. I haven't used it personally, so I'm not quite sure on how it works. So I would recommend Overcast. Uh, We'll test some of these things as we get going and get a few episodes under our belt. And again, when iOS 12 comes out, we'll test that as well. And as far as Android goes, uh, I don't have an Android device or access to one. So I think, Craig, you might. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can test that for us. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) And we'll see how that goes. Uh, Or if one of you guys want to test that for us or let us know, give us feedback. And we'll try to support that as best we can because I think that would be a cool way to enjoy the show. Um, If you'd like to support us financially, uh, you can do that. We have uh, a website. You can head out to our website at www.killerpod.net. And there is a support button in the navigation menu at the top of the page. If you're on a mobile device, you just click the navigation drop down and go to the support page and it will link you out to a place where you can help support the show. Um, Craig and I do both have full-time jobs. So this is kind of our part-time hobby right now. And we hope to get into this and, and you know be able to do this uh, at a much more regular interval, maybe cover two cases a week at some point. Right now, it's probably going to be just one because it is a lot of time for us to do the research, do the recording, edit, get a show out, and all that stuff. Anyway, follow us on social media. Uh, We're on Twitter at killer underscore podcast. Um, That's the only one that has an underscore in it is Twitter. Everybody else, Instagram is killer podcast. Email killerpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash killerpodcast. We will post things on our website from time to time. Uh, case files, show notes, those kinds of things. They'll be under our our blog on our webpage. Um, as we kind of get ramped up here in the first couple episodes, I don't know how frequent that will be or how good it'll be. Um, we're kind of working on the actual show first. That's the most important part. And then all the supplementary stuff will come later. So that being said, um, I think we, uh, we're going to call it, a, call it a close here on the uh, episode number one. Craig, you have any parting words? No, I think for our, our first episode out of the gate with this show, it was really enjoyable. Looking forward to the next one, and and like David said, follow us on all the usual social media channels and check out our website. That's right. Hit us up. We like to talk. Craig likes to talk shit to people on Twitter, so it'll be nice to him or he'll be mean to you. <laughs> I'll, I'll behave myself on this account. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, everybody. I want to leave you with this close, and it is... Monsters are real and ghosts are real too. They live inside us and sometimes they win. <laughs>